The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI-HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis, your temporary host sitting in for Tracy B. Wilson this week. Today is December 14th, and Roald Amundsen reached the South Pole on this day in 1911. Born in what's now Norway in 1872, Amundsen was born into a nautical family, a family of captains and shipbuilders, ship owners. His mother wanted him to be a doctor, so Amundsen attended university with that intent. But when she passed away when he was in his early 20s, he dropped out and took to the seas as a polar explorer. He explored Antarctica with a Belgian team in the final years of the 19th century, and about five years later was the first to make a successful expedition through Canada's Northwest Passage, which connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. He was inspired by Robert Peary reaching the North Pole in 1909. In fact, he wasn't just inspired, he'd, he'd actually been planning his own trek to the North Pole, so instead, Amundsen decided to head for the South Pole. He set off on June 3, 1910, and though he was planning to head south, he knew the plan all along, but he allowed people who financed his trip to believe he was going to the North Pole. The same held true for his crew. But when they reached the Portuguese archipelago of Madeira, he let them know about the change in plans, and six months later, they arrived at the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica. The crew set up base and named it Framheim, and spent months preparing for the trek to the Pole. Amundsen had learned much from the Inuit people while exploring the North Pole, and adopted some of their sealskin technology rather than relying on wool clothing, for example. The first attempt for the pole took place in September of 1911, but it didn't work out and the team that departed had to turn back. A month later, for the second time, 
Amundsen and four others set out. This was on October 19, 1911. They took four sledges and 52 dogs, and the plan was actually to eat some of the dogs along the way. And nearly after crossing ice and snow for two months straight, Amundsen and his team arrived at the South Pole on December 14, 1911. Now, it was another month and a half back to their base camp, then a few months on to Australia, where he finally announced his successful expedition. You can read Amundsen's own account of the journey in his 1912 book, The South Pole, an account of the Norwegian Antarctic expedition in the Fram, 1910-1912. Now, Amundsen was called brave, he was called prepared, he was called smart, but in his own words, he attributed the success of the expedition to preparation. In his own words, he wrote, I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, the way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. Now, speaking of defeat, here's the thing I haven't told you yet. Amundsen wasn't the only explorer trying to reach the South Pole. There's another character crucial to this story, and that's a British man by the name of Robert Falcon Scott. In fact, Scott and Amundsen were in a heated competition to make it to the South Pole first. And you know that Amundsen was the first person to reach the pole. Scott's tale of failure, though, is fascinating in its own right and includes English pride, ponies devoured by orca, and tens of thousands of cigars. Good stuff. In fact, if you'd like to learn more about the race to the South Pole, give a listen to the September 22, 2010 episode of our Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast, which is aptly titled The Race to the South Pole. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show, and you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or any place you like to find podcasts. Make sure to listen tomorrow when we delve into the death of an American cultural leader and icon of resistance. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Hi, I'm Eves. 
and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that makes time travel a little bit easier. The day was December 14, 1948. A patent was issued for the cathode ray tube amusement device, a predecessor to early video games. German scientist Carl Ferdinand Braun invented the first cathode ray tube scanning device in 1897. A cathode ray tube, or CRT, is a vacuum tube that produces images when an electron beam hits a phosphorescent surface. American engineer Alan B. Dumont made the first long-lasting, commercially practical CRT for television. In 1931, he started his company, Allen B. Dumont Laboratories, and before the end of the decade, the company was manufacturing some of the earliest commercial television receivers with the improved CRTs. He also established the Dumont Network, a TV network used to help promote his TV sales. Physicist Thomas T. Goldsmith Jr. had begun researching the cathode ray tube while he was getting his doctorate in physics at Cornell University, and he was hired as research director at Dumont Laboratories in New Jersey. During World War II, Dumont Laboratories shifted its focus to wartime technology, like radar. Essel Ray Mann was also an engineer at Dumont, and he and Goldsmith were likely inspired by radar displays when they developed the design for the cathode ray tube amusement device. The device was made up of resistors, a sawtooth generator, and a CRT. The game simulated firing missiles at targets. The player would use a knob to aim the beam generated by the CRT at a target on the screen. Targets, like pictures of airplanes, had to be placed manually on the screen with a piece of paper. They filed the patent for the amusement device in January of 1947, and the application was granted on December 14, 1948. The patent said that, quote, the game can be made more spectacular and the interest therein both from the player's and the observer's standpoint can be increased by making a visible explosion of the cathode ray beam take place when the target is hit. That could be done by defocusing the beam. It was the first known time in history when people proposed using a CRT to play a game, but the device was never manufactured, and it had no significant influence on the development of the video game industry. It's not clear exactly why the game was never actually built, but it could have been because Dumont lacked the resources to fund the project. The cathode ray tube amusement device was not the first video game, a title that some have awarded it. There was no video signal, no computer, and no software program. It was a simple electromechanical device. All that said, the invention is notable in its anticipation of early video games, and it's considered the earliest recorded interactive electronic game. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Know any fellow history buffs who would enjoy the show? You can share it with them. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. If email's your thing, send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here again tomorrow with another episode. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. 
Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Hello, and welcome to this day in history class, the show that pays tribute to people of the past by telling their stories today. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about Wilma Mankiller, a social activist whose dedication and vision helped secure a brighter future for the Cherokee Nation. The day was December 14, 1985. Wilma Mankiller took office as Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. She was the first woman to be elected leader of a major Native American tribe. She served in the role for 10 years, and under her leadership, the nation's education, health care, and housing services were greatly improved. If you're curious about her distinctive surname, you wouldn't be the first. She was asked about it all the time, at meetings, conferences, and press events. As she would explain, probably more often than she'd have liked, man-killer is a translation of a Cherokee term that refers to a high military rank, like captain or major. One of Wilma's ancestors had been a warrior who guarded his village, and the term of respect that signified his role later became the family surname. Of course, no one in the Cherokee Nation would think twice about her last name, but outside of Oklahoma, it tended to raise a few eyebrows, a fact that Wilma would occasionally use to her advantage. In 1993, she told the New York Times, quote, Some people do earn their names in Native culture. I didn't, but I don't always tell people that. Sometimes, I just say that Mankiller is my name, and that I earned it, and I let him wonder. Wilma Pearl Mankiller was born on November 18, 1945, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, the capital of the Cherokee Nation. She was the sixth of 11 children, and though her family's rural home lacked electricity and indoor plumbing, she later recalled that she never felt poor growing up there. That began to change in 1956, when a 10-year-old Wilma was uprooted from her ancestral home and moved to a poverty-stricken neighborhood in San Francisco. Her father, 
who was a full-blooded Cherokee, had enrolled in the Bureau of Indian Affairs Relocation Program. On the face of it, the federal program was meant to address the growing issue of poverty on tribal lands. Rural families were to be relocated to big modern cities, where they could, theoretically, have better living conditions. However, in reality, the program often left families worse off. Many struggled to find jobs and to adapt to a new way of living. Worst of all, the move separated Native people from the tribal communities they had known all their lives. Wilma later recalled the day her family moved to San Francisco, saying, quote, I remember as we drove to the train, I felt so sad. I wasn't excited at all. I was trying to memorize every tree and what the school looked like, which flowers were blooming in my grandfather's front yard, all those sorts of things. Over a hundred years earlier, in the 1830s, federal troops had forced the Cherokee, including Wilma Mankiller's great-grandfather, to leave their homes in the southeast and relocate to Oklahoma. Wilma likened the traumatic event to her own government-sponsored relocation, calling it, quote, my own little trail of tears. As a teenager growing up in the 1960s, Wilma found a place among student activists in the Bay Area protest movement. She got married in 1963 and had two children, both daughters, by the time she was 20. Despite her hectic home life, Wilma still found time for social work, like helping the Black Panther Party and its mission to feed children and the elderly. Then, in 1969, a historic event changed Wilma's life and cemented her role as a lifelong activist. In November of that year, a group of Native Americans seized control of the federal penitentiary on Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay. They claimed the island by right of discovery, citing an old treaty that gave Native people the right to occupy unused land in the United States. The Alcatraz prison had been closed in 1963, meaning that, according to the treaty, the land was up for grabs. The occupation of Alcatraz stretched on for 19 months and grew to include thousands of Native American protesters. The movement highlighted what it called a trail of broken treaties that had stripped Native Americans of the majority of their homelands. News of the occupation led Wilma to reckon with the grief of her own family's relocation and the effect it had on her sense of identity. She decided to join the cause and began making frequent visits to the island. She later explained, quote, When Alcatraz occurred, I became aware of what needed to be done to let the rest of the world know that Indians had rights too. More than anything, it was like coming home, and I felt that I was where I should be. In the end, the movement proved successful, affecting several positive changes in federal policy and sparking a new wave of Native American activism. Wilma Mankiller was among the many people inspired by the occupation, and she committed her life to empowering Native communities from then on. She became the director of the Native American Youth Center in Oakland, where she made it her mission to instill pride for Native heritage in the children growing up there. She also helped California's Pitt River tribe in its legal battle with an energy company that was encroaching on tribal lands. In 1977, 
Wilma divorced her first husband and moved back to her family land in Oklahoma along with her two daughters. There, she founded the Community Development Department for the Cherokee Nation and successfully launched a clean water and housing project that revitalized a tribal community in Bell, Oklahoma. She gained recognition for the success and was asked to be the running mate of Ross Swimmer in his 1983 bid to be principal chief. Wilma was targeted for her gender during the campaign, including several death threats, but she and Swimmer won anyway. Two years later, Swimmer stepped down to take a position in the federal government. Wilma ran the first of two successful campaigns for the top spot of Principal Chief in 1985. Five years later, she secured a second term by winning 83% of all votes cast. During her time as chief, Wilma worked to break down the economic and social barriers that had kept many of her people in poverty for generations. Her policies doubled annual tribal revenue, growing the nation's yearly budget to a healthy $150 million by the end of her tenure. She put much of that money right back into the community, overhauling the tribal health care system and expanding educational resources. By the time Wilma left office in 1995, membership in the Cherokee Nation had grown from 72,000 members to over 170,000. Wilma Mankiller was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1993. Five years later, President Bill Clinton awarded her the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She passed away from pancreatic cancer on April 6, 2010, at the age of 64. Her life was lived in service to others, safeguarding customs and traditions, while also charting a path forward for her people. Despite her many achievements, Wilma Mankiller took a modest approach to her legacy. When asked what she hoped future generations would take from her story, she replied, I hope that when I leave, it will just be said, I did what I could. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.